Would you turn with me again in your copy of God's Word, this time to the New Testament. Our passage this morning is found on page 811 of your pew Bibles. The text is Matthew 6, uh, verses 9 to 15. Uh, last week, Pastor Jim preached a wonderful message on uh, all of verses uh, 1 to 18, on practiced righteousness, on sort of these three pillars of uh, Christian piety and practice, right? That Christians give to the needy, how we pray uh, and we fast, and how we do that not out of our own strength, but with the righteousness that Christ gives, sort of lived out in us. And none of you seem to wonder why our new pastor skipped the entirety of the Lord's Prayer uh, in that sermon last week. At least none of you phoned me about that, worried that he missed the most important part of the text. Uh, he was told to do so, uh, so that I could do it this morning. Uh, we saved verses 9 to 15, uh, this, what is known as the Lord's Prayer, uh, for its own sermon. It fits, of course, in the context of Christians filled with the righteousness of Christ, living that out when we give, when we pray, and when we fast. So when we pray, what's it supposed to be like? Well, Jesus tells us. Follow along with me in your copy of God's Word, Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. Do you join me again in prayer? Our Lord and our God, we call you Father this morning, and we dare to call even you our Father, because you have told us to, and you have made a way to the throne of grace by the work of your one and only Son, Jesus. Lord, take the words now of our older brother, who brings us and takes us by the hand and shows us how to pray. Lord, would we learn not only in these couple minutes words to say and postures to take, but, oh God, would we learn above all else what it really means to call you Father. Speak to us, O oh God, in these few minutes, for your servants are listening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, every newlywed couple goes through some period of adjustment, right? Some time of sort of getting used to living with someone else and talking in different ways and experiencing different things with their new spouse. My wife and I are no different than that. When we first got married, I noticed very quickly my wife had a habit of calling her dad for everything. She was on her phone with her dad multiple times a day. She had a flat tire. She called her dad, 
If there was a drip in the sink, she called her dad. If she had a financial question, she called her dad. If she realized she had married a guy that couldn't solve any of those problems, she called her dad. <laughs> it was constant calling of her dad. And you can imagine how an insecure young husband poorly handled uh, such a situation. I came to appreciate, though, after time, how my wife knew that her dad loved her. She knew that her dad would do anything for her. He loved her, and he would do anything. And Some of you have father-in-laws like this. He can seemingly do anything he sets his mind to. He loved her, and he could do anything. So what did that mean for her life? I mean, she called her dad all the time. (laughs) What does this mean for us as the children of God? We have a father who loves us and can do anything. And what does that mean for our lives as his children? What does that mean about our posture towards him in prayer? What I want to show you this morning in this text is is actually very simple. And that's that the father-child relationship lies at the heart of Christian prayer. In fact, it lies at the heart of the entire Christian life, doesn't it? But our focus this morning is the father-child relationship lies at the heart of Christian prayer. And whether you had a father like my wife, or you had a very different father, or you had no father at all, the good news of the gospel is you have this kind of father by faith in Christ. So as we unpack this morning the Lord's Prayer, we're not going to look at it kind of super detailed. Instead, I want to ask three big questions about prayer. The questions are this, who do we pray to? What do we pray for? And how do we pray? Who, what, and how? And the answer to all three of those questions is found in the father-child relationship that lies at the heart of of Christian prayer. So, our three big questions. Our first question, who do we pray to? You know, sometimes when we go to pray, we worry about what should I be saying, or what list should I be talking about and not talking about. And and it's important to know what we pray, but Jesus' framing in these verses shows us that the biggest question is who. And the answer to the question who is, of course, Father. You see that first line, it's not actually a request, right? The prayer itself has six requests, more or less. The first verse is not a request, it's the the address, right? Our Father in heaven. Jesus introduces us in the Sermon on the Mount to this language of Father. He uses it over and over again. It's it's already popped up a number of times in his teaching, right? In the, the last week, we saw that our Father who sees in secret will reward us. Right, It's our Father who, who shines his light in and through his people. It's not new necessarily for the people of the Bible to use the word Father for their God. Right, Israelites uh, were called the, 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 the people or the Son of God. But the address of God using the word Father is something pretty new that comes from Jesus. That Jesus teaches us this intimate method of or direction or access to God in prayer characterized by the fatherhood of God. 
Many of us have learned to pray the easy way, which is in our own language. (laughs) I learned to pray a few years ago in another language, uh, in Spanish. We were studying Spanish, and uh, I found out that the Spanish language has a couple different conjugations for how you speak to someone, as you address someone. And there's a formal way to talk directly to another person, you, and there's a very informal way to do it. And in my mind, I thought, well, when you pray to God... You probably should use the formal way to talk, right? I mean, you talk to kings in the formal way. You talk to parents in the formal way. You talk to elders in the formal way. It turns out my friends uh, in Spanish would pray to God using the most intimate of conjugations. Uh, Their language itself spoke of the, the nearness and the intimacy of praying to someone they knew as father. The closeness of the father is balanced by where he is. Where is this father? He's in heaven. And he's not sort of right next to us in the easy chair, right? No, he's in the seat of power. He's in the place of the sovereign king. He rules and reigns over all the heavens and the earth. right? The, the one who we have immediate and familial access to that we call father transcends everything by his almighty and powerful place in heaven. You see, there's sort of this zooming in of our father and then it's immediate zooming out to the heights and the glories of heaven. But there's one more word in this opening phrase that tells us who we pray to and that's the first word, our father. We don't pray to your father. We don't pray to the father. We don't pray to my father. Christians pray to our father. The emphasis here is on the family of God. It's on the the fellowship of the people of God. Of course, every Christian has an individual relationship with their creator and redeemer. But God relates to us as his people. And so we pray our It's also another way to say, if we can sort of say this with all due respect, he belongs to us. (laughs) He's not their God. He's not your God. He's he's our God. Jesus will go on to speak of of praying to this father in the next chapter, in chapter 7. And he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Remember when you were a friend, when you were a, a child, sorry, and you were at your friend's house and you wanted to have a snack, a special snack, you wanted to go play Nintendo or something, and you'd ask your buddy, hey, go ask your dad. I'm not going to ask him. He kind of scares me, but you go ask your dad, right? Because this is our father. Other people don't get to ask him things. The people of God ask our father who is in heaven. You have prayed this hundreds of times. I hope you are reminded this morning of how the fatherhood of God draws us in intimacy and confidence to our Father in heaven. Or here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes how that word father works. It says the word father teaches us to draw near to God with reverence and confidence as children to a father, able And ready to help us. The confidence of children drawn to a father who loves them and can do anything for them. 
Who do we pray to? We pray to our Father in heaven. As we draw near to him, though, what is it that we pray for? What is it that we are to lay before our Father? And so I want to answer the second question in this text. What do we pray for? There are, I said it a minute ago, six, the theologians call them petitions, just questions. Six requests uh, in the Lord's Prayer. Now, some sort of put the second and the third kingdom and will together. I think those can fit together. I'll explain it in a second. We're just going to look at the six because they're sort of paired off. Sort of the first three petitions or the first three requests. And the second three petitions or requests, right? And they're set apart because the first three have the word your. And the second three have the word our, right? The first three are directed towards God. They're, they're praying or petitioning something for God. And the second trio, right, is asking God something from God, right, for us. So the first three go up and they're for God. The second three come down from God for us. Now you notice when I read, you might have thought I was skipping a verse, right? Is there some hidden ending in verse 13? Because we, we have this final phrase uh, that, we can, that we pray together. We'll pray it next Sunday. We prayed it last Sunday. We end the Lord's prayer with thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You might have been thinking, where, where is that? Well, it's not there. <laughs> Uh, it wasn't originally there. Right? It was added later uh, to the Lord's Prayer. It's perfectly fine. It's pretty good theology. It's just not in Matthew. So we're not going to preach about it uh, this morning. We're just going to cover the six that we find here. Last thing before we start to look at each of them. Do you, do you notice how it's God telling us what to pray for? It's pretty instructive, isn't it? That, that God is framing what we need. I mean, you think you know what you need. My kids think they know what they need, but I, I feel like I know a little bit better what they need than they do, right? Well, God knows exactly what we need. He, he tells us exactly what to ask for because these are the things he promises to give us, okay? And as, if our lives are formed by asking for these things, then the Lord's Prayer is not merely a prayer. It is an outline, as Sinclair Ferguson says, for the whole Christian life. This tiny little prayer, these four and a half verses, are an outline that sets all of the priorities for us as Christians. And as we pray this prayer, it actually has the effect of forming who we are. Right? It, it forms our appetites. It forms our desires. Right? It forms and disciples us as the people of God. So let's look at each of these six petitions. Let's look at the first three. They're all your, your, your. They're requests for the Father. The first one is for your name. The second, the end of verse nine, hallowed be your name. That sounds really old, doesn't it? I mean, when else do you say something is hallowed? Right? Well, let's begin first with the name of God. The name reflects one's character. Right? It reflects one's person. God is very intentional about the names that he gives himself and who he tells those names to. And he particularly gives his name to the people of God. Right? The whole 
the whole world knows God. The Israelites know him as the Lord. Right? You might have a, a, a mom or a dad that has all sorts of important titles and fancy numbers after, or letters after her name or her name, all these sort of degrees. And she's called doctor. Or he's called reverend, whatever it is. And you just call him dad, right? Because we have the, the special name of God. And that name reflects the character of God. It is to be hallowed. That is, it is to be made holy. You know what it's like for someone to make fun of your name. You could probably think of those people that picked on you in childhood about your name. I have got mine. My kids are sworn to secrecy. They will never tell you how they made fun of my name. But you know how they made fun of your name. And you know how angry it gets when your family name is drugged through the mud, right? When your family name is mocked, it is slandered against. How infuriated that makes you. Because to treat how we treat someone's name is how we treat that person. And so for God, for his name to be hallowed is not for somehow God's name itself to become more holy. Right? God does not become more or less holy. He is holy. It's for the world to see him as he really is the holy one. Okay? Whereas one commentator has said, it's not the pr- we pray not that God would become holy, but that he would be treated as holy. We want to see God's name exalted and honored to the very ends of the earth. We want to see his name exalted and honored in our households, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, right? In our government, throughout all the areas of our world, we want to see the name of God glorified and exalted and proclaimed and hallowed. And that has nothing to do with us, does it? (laughs) We're praying for God. Same with the second request. Your kingdom come. We do not pray, God, let my kingdom come. Or our kingdom come. No, it's your kingdom come. Now, this seems kind of odd because Jesus has just said a couple chapters ago, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So, It's already here in the arrival of Jesus. And yet he tells us the kingdom is here and we're supposed to pray that it would come. Is Jesus somehow confused about what he's already said? Of course not. The kingdom is at hand, we might say, but it is not fully come in all its glory and and beauty and majesty and power. So what are we asking for? Well, we're asking, number one, that the kingdom of grace would come spread right God is shining like the sun in the sky and sometimes that sun breaks through the clouds in our fallen worlds a world and the expression of his kingdom and so we are praying essentially that those clouds would part some more that God's kingdom would be advanced now God's kingdom does not advance as people win physical battles, as national boundary lines are drawn, as legislation is passed in the government, as judges rule according to God's justice, those are all good things. That does not bring about God's kingdom on earth. Rather, the spread of God's kingdom is when his Holy Spirit opens up dead hearts to believe in Jesus and regenerate men and women and children enter into the kingdom of God. This prayer is an incredibly evangelistic prayer. 
We are praying for God's spirit to open minds and hearts to believe. When we see churches planted and believers coming to faith and baptizing their children and raising them in the covenant community and spreading out as witnesses to the very ends of the earth, that is God's kingdom coming. That is what the people of God so desperately pray for. But there's another level to this, isn't there? Because the kingdom we experience now, we might call the kingdom of grace. But we know that the king is coming back. And that is the kingdom of glory. So the other level to this prayer is we are praying, if I can paraphrase it, Jesus, hurry up and come back. (laughs) Or as we read in the end of the book of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus. Set every wrong to right. Wipe away every tear, strike down every rebel power and rule right now on earth in the same way you rule in heaven. You see the tie to the next request because there's no rebellion in heaven. There's no disagreement in heaven. You see, we pray your name be hallowed, your kingdom come. And then thirdly, uh, we pray your will be done. This is both the easiest prayer and the hardest prayer, I think, in the list, right? Uh, we love to pray, let your will be done when God's will lines up with our will, right? Sure. If your will is to give me a bonus tax return this year, yeah, your will be done. If I'm going to have to pay my taxes this year and I want a different will to be done, right? It's easy to pray for God's will when we agree with God. It's a lot harder when it doesn't feel like he's doing what we want. This is a really hard prayer when you're waiting in the unemployment line, right? This is a really hard prayer when you're in the waiting room and you don't know what those results are going to be and you don't know what the doctor's going to say. And you, quite frankly, don't know how the surgery is going to turn out. This is a really hard prayer when you're in the funeral home. Thy will be done. You see, we can only pray this prayer because we're praying it to our Father. And we know our Father loves us. It might not feel like it, but we know it's true. We know our Father gives us only good things. That's really hard to believe when you're in that waiting room, right? The Bible tells us, and we believe it, despite what our flesh tells us. We believe it because God's word says it's true. And so we rejoice to pray as our Lord prayed, thy will be done. You see, these prayers aren't about us. They're about our Father, your name, your kingdom, your will. And where these really challenge us, if they haven't challenged you yet, is that this is easy to pray and this is hard to live. If this is an outline for our prayer, yeah, I can do that. If this is an outline for the priorities of my life, that is a whole lot harder. If my priority is God's name, not my name, won't that in fact how I live? If my priority is his kingdom and not my kingdom, if it's his will, not my will, 
You see, you know as well as I do, you can pray this prayer in the morning, you can walk out your door, and you can live the exact opposite of this prayer. See, the center of the Christian life so far, I'm not in this, and you're not in this yet. It's all about God. It's all about our Father. He is the center of our lives, and the heartbeat of our prayer is not us, it's Him, right? It is His name, it's His kingdom, it's His will, it's His glory. This God, of course, though he tells us to pray for him first and the center of our lives, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't only care for his glory and kingdom. Because for these things to happen, it is good for us, isn't it? It might feel like we want our will and our kingdom and our name in the moment. But it is better for us, for all of that to advance. And then God tells us, not only what we pray for the Father, he tells us what we ask from the Father. Our second set of three requests. I wonder if these line up with your prayer list. Now, the first one is, we pray not for your, now we pray for our. We pray for our provision. Give us this day our daily bread. A bread is a metaphor for our daily needs, right? So we are praying that God would provide what we need for today. Uh, There's some dispute of whether this is talking about this day or we pray this prayer always talking about tomorrow. Either one, it's it's daily dependence upon the Lord. It's easy for us to forget, right? I mean, we got freezers, we have deep freezers, right? We can save up our food, we go to Sam's Club, right? We don't really worry all that much, most of us, where our meal is coming from tomorrow. Not as much, right? And in Jesus' day, but this prayer reminds all of us that God is our provider, that he gives us work, right? That he, that he rewards our work, that he gives us clean water to drink and healthy food to eat and a roof over our head, that this frames our daily prayers for God to give us all that we physically need for tomorrow. But that physical need pales in comparison to our spiritual need. That's the second of the our request, our pardon. Jesus tells us in verse 12 to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. All right, let's take these, let's take this apart. We got two parts here. The first part, forgive us. That's easy. That means that we have sinned against God. That means he's teaching every single one of us that we need the forgiveness of God. Whether you acknowledge God or not, you need the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And he teaches you to pray, oh God, freely pardon my sin for the sake of Jesus. Right? Take the wrath that my sin today deserves and put it on him. And that's what we're praying. We're praying, count it as sufficient before your eye of judgment that he has paid the full price for every one of my sins. But then Jesus sort of qualifies it for us. As we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the only one of the six requests that Jesus takes time at the end of the prayer to go on and explain to us. 
to make sure we didn't miss it. Verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This has caused much stumbling in the church, right? Is Jesus somehow telling us that we must earn forgiveness by forgiving other people? Because if he's telling us that, then he's totally erasing what the word forgiveness means in the first place, right? If you have to earn forgiveness, it's not forgiveness. It's just, a, it's just an exchange. It's just a, a regular payment. What Jesus is telling us is that our actions towards those who have sinned against us, they don't earn anything, but they do demonstrate. They demonstrate whether we really understand the forgiveness that we have asked of our Father. And what if I set this as a rule for you, a spiritual rule? I'm not saying this, but what if? And I said, you can only ask God to forgive you as much as you've given out forgiveness to other people. Like, what if we had a little asterisk on our confession of sin said, real quick, before we do this, how much have you forgiven this week? Because that's only as much as you're allowed to ask for God. Because Jesus, he knows that if we don't forgive others, Have we really even asked God to forgive us in the first place? Do we even know what that word means? If we are demanding or requesting it from God and then restricting it from other people. There are many people who claim the name of Christ who would proclaim Day after day, the forgiveness of sins, that they're washed by the blood, and yet they harbor bitterness towards those who have sinned against them. That that you refuse to release others from their debts, even though you have been released from an unimaginable debt. You see, the only way we can ever be moved to forgive others is to understand God's forgiveness of us. And if we are holding on to not forgiving others, then we're also not asking God to really and truly forgive us. Jesus cuts to the heart in this request. He presses home the calling of the people of God that we spread the forgiveness we have found at the foot of the cross by ready and freely running to forgive others. And then finally, our final request from God is our protection. What do we ask God for? We ask for our provision, our pardon, and finally our protection. You see that last verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's a footnote there, maybe in your Bible, in my Bible, Uh, It says, or, another translation, the evil one, who, of course, is the devil. I lean towards that translation. Either way, the the evil one is a worker of evil. We're asking God to protect us, but I, I think it might be a better translation to say, deliver us from the evil one. So there's two sides to this coin. Uh, One is we pray that Jesus would keep us from being tempted to sin in the first place, right? Keep that temptation away from me. I cannot handle it. Don't let that temptation into my life, into my mind, onto my screen, into my house, into my office, because I can't handle it. Keep me from being tempted to sin. 
And God hears and answers that prayer probably a whole lot more than you've ever realized how he keeps you from being tempted. But he also allows you to be tested. God does not tempt you, but he does allow you to be tested. And so the second part of this prayer is that when we are tempted by the evil one, tested by God, same experience, different purposes, when we are tempted, oh God, support and deliver us. Get me out of this temptation. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you see how God has has framed your greatest needs? You need provision for your spiritual health. You need pardon for, for your physical health. You need pardon and protection from your spiritual health. And all of these things that God tells you to ask for, he freely gives. He gives us our daily bread. Sometimes in miraculous ways, as in the Bible, right? When he feeds the 4,000, the 5,000. Sometimes in ordinary ways. That God grants us pardon. He tells us to ask for it and then he gives us the cross. He holds the cross of Jesus before our very eyes. Where the blood of the atoning sacrifice was shed. That we might receive full and free pardon. He tells us to ask for it and then he gives it to us. He tells us to ask for protection and he gives it to us. The same Jesus who spoke in Matthew chapter 4 to Satan in the wilderness. He said, be gone, Satan. That's the same one to whom we ask for protection in our great spiritual need. You see, the Bible tells us what to pray for. God knows us a lot better than we know ourselves. But finally and quickly, he tells us how to do it. How do we ask for these things? Do we need to go to downtown Asheville and stand on the street corner and shout as loud as we can before God? Do we need to have the fanciest theological language and take it before God? Do we need to go and talk endlessly, right? Nonstop before God? Or do we come to him in the simplicity of the Lord's prayer? You see, when you have to ask a friend for a big favor, right, you kind of plan it out how you're going to ask him, right? Kind of figure out, like, what, what could I bake him, <laughs> right? What would he like to eat or some snacks that she likes? Maybe they'll kind of butter him up to ask a big favor. The Lord doesn't need that, right? You see, the problem with how the Pharisees were praying to God, they were heaping up empty phrases, they were repeating their many words, it showed that they didn't know who they were praying for. Who talks to their dad like that? You see, they didn't know who they were praying to. How do we pray? We pray like this. One of the questions about these verses is, do we call this the Lord's Prayer as like an element for worship? Is this a liturgical element, like a creed that needs to be kind of regularly in our services of worship? Or is this just a model, right? Is this an example of how we should pray well the the short answer is it's both i think (laughs) right we pray our in a sense of praying together with the people of god the church pretty much from its inception prayed together the lord's prayer but jesus also tells us he doesn't say pray this he says pray like this when we find the lord's prayer in luke it's different than this it's not because jesus sort of forgot what he said in another place no it's 
Because Jesus is giving a general model or outline for us. The reason we use it so regularly in prayer and worship is that by learning it and memorizing it and internalizing it, it should feed your prayer throughout the rest of the week. The way we pray in here on Sunday morning is designed to teach you and me how to pray the rest of the week. This is the form and the the outline of our prayers. So what does the Lord's Prayer model for us? Well, we've already seen the type of requests we should ask. We've already seen different categories for prayer. Uh, Martin Luther, speaking of prayer, said it should be brief, frequent, and intense. (laughs) That's the kind of prayer modeled here. It's, It's brief. The Pharisees prayed with a lot of words. Jesus said, pray like this. We can read this thing in less than a minute. It should be frequent. Let me ask you this. How often do you need your daily bread? Every day. How often do you need to be forgiven? How often do you need to be protected from the evil one? This isn't a daily prayer. This is an hourly prayer, isn't it? When you put it in that category. And finally, it's intense. The Pharisees had empty phrases. That's the opposite of intensity. It's just babbling. This is direct prayer. It's frequent. It's brief. It's frequent. It's intense. Who talks like this? Children. (laughs) Children talk like this. Who prays like this? Children pray like this. When my kids ask me for things... They don't use eloquent language and heap up empty phrases, do they? No, their, their questions to me are brief, frequent, and intense. If you have a baby in your house, you know their cries are frequent, intense, and you wish they were brief, right? This is how children talk to their parents. But hold on, who are God's children? Well, Jesus. Jesus is the very Son of God. We've already confessed This morning, he is very God of very God. He is begotten, not made. He is the natural child. And in the gospel, he has brought you and me in as adopted sons and daughters of God himself. And he's teaching us how to pray. He said, I have lived my, without end, the father and the son through all of eternity. Jesus has been talking to the father. And now this tiny little moment in history, a bunch of us ragtag new sons and daughters have come along. And Jesus says, pray like this. This is how children talk to their new father. This is how adopted children talk to their new father. Or as the apostle Paul says it in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's the gospel in a nutshell. You have received adoption. You were once strangers. You were once Exiles, You were once foreigners to the promises of God. God does not only forgive us and cleanse us, that he does. He does not only justify us before the court of heaven, he does. But now he brings us with full embrace into his divine and eternal family. 
that Jesus, our elder brother, now by faith in him, makes us children of the king. And we have the right and the privilege of natural-born children in that kingdom. Or as we read in Romans 8, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The two times Paul talks about adoptions in his letters, they end with the application that we cry, Abba, Father. Let me close with a final question. What do you call God? Most people, whether they believe or not, they call upon God. Some form or fashion, some time in their life. We've just started soccer season in my house. And I am an assistant coach for an 11-year-old girls soccer team. And so for an hour yesterday, they constantly called me coach. It's nonstop. Dozens of girls, coach, 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 coach. And then every once in a while, I would hear this other word, dad. And where did my attention go, right? Where did my heart go in that moment? You see, lots of people call on God, but only those adopted in Christ can call him father. Dear brother and sister, dear friends, dear visitors, Trust Christ as your older brother, and he will bring you to your father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we indeed were once strangers and exiles from your promises. By our sin, we were counted as servants. Servants of sin itself, servants of a a foreign king like Pharaoh, servants even of Satan, and we rejoice and stand to praise your glorious name that you have seen fit to love us as children and send your only begotten son in our place to make us daughters and sons of the king. And that you draw us so near that you put the words in our mouths to call you our father. Lord, remind us of your gospel this morning that it might overcome our sinful tendency to run and flee and hide from you. And give us the audacious confidence that only the cross can give to run in Christ to your throne of grace. And know that by his blood we are accepted now and ever. And that our words and our prayers and our lives are rendered to you, our Father in heaven, in whose name we pray. Amen.